Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your Jerry Falwell Jr.'s Unzip Pants and A People's Theology host, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Jeff Chu. Jeff is an author and reform minister. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Everything in Slow Motion. Everything in Slow Motion is a rock band from Fargo, North Dakota. You can get connected with both Jeff and Everything in Slow Motion and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Jeff Chu with me, and Jeff Chu, you do lots of things, including writing and speaking, and uh, you were even a farmer at one point, so you do lots of things in the world, uh, but I'm wondering, who is Jeff Chu to Jeff Chu? Nobody has ever asked me that question before, so Ooh. I'll give you bonus points for an original question. Um, I, I, It's hard to answer. I guess it depends on the moment, you know? Um, there's a side of me that feels pretty all over the place and inconsistent. I'm just trying to make my way through the world and not be a shitty human being <laughs> and learn how to be loving because I'm not that loving and learn to find joy and beauty wherever I can. So uh, like I mentioned before, you are a writer and uh, it's you know been a few years now since you wrote, Does Jesus Really Love Me? Um, what's something maybe, uh, while you were writing that book that you learned about yourself? It was your first book, correct? It was my first and so far only book. Great. Um, okay. So what was something you learned about yourself, uh, writing your very first book? So the book really was a one year long pilgrimage across America and across the theological spectrum, trying to understand why allegedly people who call themselves Christians believe in the same God, but differ so radically on the question of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And what I learned about myself was that I wasn't ready to give up on God or the church yet. Mm. And I wasn't sure about that. Um, I had been out of church for a few years and I had just tiptoed back in but I had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions that there was a place for me in that. And traveling around the country, listening to people's stories. And it wasn't just people who had stayed in Christianity. I talked to atheists, I talked to agnostics, I talked to all different kinds of people. But one of the things I learned was that faith wasn't done with me yet. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, you know, like I mentioned, it was, it's been two, since 2013, right? When it was released. 
right? Yeah. So how have you changed in those last seven years since the book was released? So a lot has changed since 2013. So when the book came out, I was engaged, but not married. And now I'm married. I was a full-time journalist in 2013. And now I am part journalist, part essayist. (laughs) I co-curate this conference called Evolving Faith. I do a lot more Jesus-y stuff than I ever thought I would. (laughs) I was living in New York in 2013, and now I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And living in the Midwest was not something that I would ever have scripted for my life. (laughs) I had never worked on a farm. And uh, as you mentioned, I've done some farming. I went to seminary. That was another thing that I would never have planned. And even in 2013, if you had asked me to put money on it, I would have never bet that I would have gone to seminary. Mm. So it's been a crazy seven years. That's that's really interesting that like even in that whole pilgrimage, at no point it did seminary come up as like, a well, this might be a route that I want to take. At no point, even in that pilgrimage, that that option came up in your life? I think I was just trying to survive the church. And if you're just trying to survive the church, spending all your days and nights studying <laughs> theology is not exactly at the top of the list. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> totally understand that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really curious, and you mentioned this, about kind of the structure of the book is that you went to explore all sorts of different kinds of Christianities throughout America, uh, specifically in how they engage with uh, LGBTQ people. Um, So, you know, there are many Christianities across the spectrum in America. Uh, Are there any kind of new Christianities that you've seen emerge since writing the book? Um, Or maybe there are even some maybe significant developments that have happened in one of the particular kind of Christianities that you uh, end up encountering in the book that maybe didn't exist before writing that book. Um, So, yeah, if if there's any of those, like what are they and um, what sort of things would you say about them if you added a chapter about them? So I want to be clear, the stories in the book are about gay people, lesbian people, and there might be one or two people who identify as bi. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I don't deal with, and one of the areas that I've really had to think about myself is uh, the experience of transgender people of faith. Mm. Um, There is actually one person in the book who came out as trans after it was published. And... I asked her, do you want me to revise the story? And she said, no. At the time when you interviewed me, that was my story. Mm. And so she shows up in the book as a gay man. Mm. And that evolution says a lot about how much the landscape of American Christianity has changed, the visibility of trans people. And Mm. I have learned so much, but I still have so much more to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I wouldn't say that's a a different Christianity. I would say that is a layer of richness and texture and nuance that I had a very poor understanding of then. And now I would say only have a mediocre understanding of. Mm -hmm. Um, But through folks like Austin Hartke uh, and other friends who have not written books, I've gotten 
new understanding of a different dimension of Christianity through their trans experiences. Mm. I would also say that a big part of my seminary experience involved reading theologies that were not written down by straight white men, Hmm. reading more work by women, reading more work from Asia and Africa and Latin America. Those things haven't emerged since I wrote the book, but they've emerged in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more of us in the U.S. are aware of how impoverished our understanding of Christianity is because we have not paid adequate attention to those voices. I would say even within the U.S., um, I never had read anything by a Native American theologian Mm. at the time I wrote the book. Uh, Now I can count Caitlin Curtis as a friend of mine. Mm. And having friends and conversation partners like Caitlin point me to another area of richness that is too often overlooked Mm. in the American church. Mm -hmm. So if I could go back and add a chapter, I don't know if I would, because I don't think I could do justice, for instance, to the trans-Christian experience in one chapter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think it deserves space of its own, that I'm not sure I could give it. Mm-hmm and uh, wisdom that I don't know that I have. But I will say that that is something that doesn't show up in my book. And that might be to the book's detriment. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's interesting, though, uh, you know, you mentioned that it could be to the book's detriment. But like you mentioned, like doing like if you did happen to write a chapter on it, it does seem like it limits that experience in a way that by not having wrote a chapter on it, it allows for that space to be opened up for other voices to emerge, uh, to write their own stories about of, about that experience. Does that seem to be like a fair assessment to like actually might may have been a benefit that that experience hadn't been written down? Do you do you feel that any sense of that? Yeah, and look, I I wrote the book as a gay person trying to figure out the intersection of sexuality and faith, Christian faith specifically, right? Mm -hmm. And I think gender identity has a whole different set of questions Mm. and struggles with Christianity that are distinct from those that have to do with sexuality. Mm. Sometimes there might be overlap there, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it does deserve space of its own and it deserves a writer who understands those things from a much more personal point of view. So one of the things that also changed since you wrote the book is gay marriage. Gay marriage was legalized in 2015. Um, So, you know, with it being something that happened after the book was released, how do you think that the church 
in America has been affected by the legalization of gay marriage in 2015? In some ways, I think the legalization of gay marriage across the entire country has intensified the debates around the place of married gay people in the church. And you can see that in my denomination. I'm part of the Reformed Church in America, and we're still fighting about that. Uh, I may not be able to be ordained in my denomination because I'm married to my husband. I don't know that we were talking about it in the same way before 2015 because from the point of view of traditionalists, it wasn't quite the, and I hesitate to use this word and I don't want people to misunderstand me, but the danger mm. to traditionalists that it became after 2015. Uh, you didn't have pastors worried that they were gonna be forced to perform same-sex marriages, for instance. And I think in some ways that has sharpened and even made the debate more ugly. Mm. And I think that's something we have to deal with realistically and pragmatically and with even more care and attention for those who are potentially harmed by the ugliness of the debate. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I actually, interestingly enough, um, went to an RCA college in Iowa. And um, one of the things that I noticed, and, and I was still in college uh, when, when gay marriage was legalized, um, it, it certainly intensified that debate. Um, it, the, all sides in, in their unique ways sort of felt like they had to rise to a certain level of positioning to sort of defend themselves after, uh, after the gay marriage was, was legalized, uh, across the, uh, across the nation. Um, and so, yeah, like, it's really interesting, even in that, like, particularly RCA, uh, small conservative Christian college world, that was a sort of monumental defining moment for that school. Um, and my experience in that school, because of the way in which it intensified all sides, to sort of have to feel like they have to rise to a challenge because um, there was, a, at least on a political level, there was a stake made. There was a, there was a, a, a line in the sand that was drawn. Uh, so it's really interesting that like you've experienced that within the RCA. And I, like, in kind of my own interesting, unique way, also have experienced that same thing in the, in the RCA. Um, do you feel like, where, where do you feel like the RCA is? Like, I know that there was supposed to, I'm sure it probably has delayed, been delayed now, but there was supposed to be conversation about it at like a general assembly or conference um, at Northwestern. Yeah, so General Synod was supposed to happen in June, and it was just postponed. And at that synod, a task force that has been working for two years to propose possible outcomes for the denomination was supposed to present their report. And I have a, a couple of friends who are on that task force. And that task force has pastors and elders on it from across the theological spectrum within the RCA. And they have been working so prayerfully and faithfully to come up with what they believe are faithful, good solutions. Mm. And I think some of us are anxious to hear what that outcome will be 
And so that's just been pushed a little bit further into the future. Mm. Mm-hmm. We have to wait. Uh, we have to wait a little longer. Uh, but I, I think waiting is a part of faith, right? <laughs> Believing that God is still working, even though the report hasn't been issued. And mm-hmm. God is still working, even if synod doesn't meet when it's supposed to. That's part of what we believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are definitely people freaking out about the fact that synod is postponed and uh, we don't know exactly what the timeline will be. But I mean, the Bible is a book full of people freaking out about things not happening when they want them to. <laughs> and that same Bible testifies to the fact that God is still faithful. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned at the beginning is in your book, uh, you encountered a number of stories from a number of different people as you pilgrim pilgrimaged uh, across America. Um out of all of the stories that you encountered to kind of make up the book, what is a story that still stays with you today? So one couple that I profiled, uh, it's a mixed orientation marriage. Uh, pastor, a PCA pastor, and his wife. And mm-hmm. I stayed with them for three days and, and had meals with them, watched them go about their daily work, and talked in some pretty intimate detail about their lives. And they were open about even their sex lives, which I did not bring up, but they did. (laughs) And I think the reason that story has stuck with me, it was partly the vulnerability with which they were willing to share with me Mm. because they wanted the world to get an articulate, an accurate picture of what their mixed orientation marriage looks like. Mm. And they also wanted people to know that their life wasn't built together out of uh, ignorance or naive hope or some kind of shallow optimism that everything will turn out fine. And that story challenged me. Being with them challenged me because obviously that is not the route that my life has taken. Hmm. I can't imagine that a mixed orientation marriage would work for me. But talking to them and sitting with them and listening to them forced me to confront the reality that that might be the right path for them. Uh, Their family has grown. At the time, they didn't have any kids, and now they do. Their ministry has continued from all that I can see. They're doing good and faithful work. They're devoting themselves to building a multicultural congregation in a mixed neighborhood socioeconomically and racially and ethnically in their city. And the reality of their journey I ha- in the face of the reality of their journey, I have no choice but to acknowledge that there can be paths very different from mine that are faithful. Mm. There can be theologies that are different from mine that I would say are God-honoring. And I know that's going to be controversial for some folks to hear. And I don't want people to hear that this is me advocating for mixed orientation marriage. 
what I do want people to hear is actually, this is me advocating for that particular mixed orientation marriage, mm -hmm. because I've watched two people flourish. Mm. What do you do with that? Right? It's complicated. I would hope and I believe that they look at my marriage and can see that it has been God honoring and faithful too. Uh, but I think a friendship grew out of that time that we spent together. And I honor that. of an incredible project when you were at Princeton Seminary um, called the Farminary. Can you describe what the Farminary is and what was ex like? What did you do in your work there? Sure, I love talking about the farm and okay. I will talk about the farm all day and all night. Uh, the Farminary is a 21 acre sustainable farm that doubles as a classroom. <laughs> and it's a pretty big classroom. It is a beautiful classroom. You walk onto that property and you see this pond that is a, a haven for geese and ducks. And there are these big old trees. There is a hundred by hundred space in which we have planted. There are beehives. Sometimes there are chickens. And that space is used for hands-on education. So much of the typical seminary education takes place in classrooms. So much of real life is lived outside of classrooms. Mm. And I think it was a very brave and bold thing for Princeton Seminary to do to say, we need to have a space for theological learning that engages with the world outside the four walls of an academic institution. So a lot of the work we did there and is still going on, even though I've graduated and sadly no longer get to be at the farm, mm. is about looking at what the story is that God has written into creation and how we might be invited to participate in helping that creation flourish. Mm. Nate Stuckey, who is a professor at Princeton Seminary and a Mennonite who started the farm, he would always challenge us because even though we're growing zinnias and sunflowers and tomatoes and peppers and kale and spinach, he would always say, what's our primary crop? Our primary crop is not the pretty flowers and the delicious vegetables. Our primary crop is good soil. Mm. And he meant that not just metaphorically because a day at the farm near produces so many useful metaphors, probably too many useful metaphors for, <laughs> for Christian folk. We were actually making good soil through the compost pile. And that was so crucial for our understanding of what life, death, and resurrection looks like. The farm was started on a piece of land that had been abused. It was a sod farm, and then it was a Christmas tree farm. 
and there was almost no, no topsoil left by the time we got there. So the creation and production of good soil is actually an act of participating in the healing of the earth. Mm. In bringing life back to a piece of land that had not been treated well, that had not been honored, that had not been helped by humans to be the best piece of land that it could be. And I learned more from that compost pile than probably from any teacher I've ever had. Uh, I joke with my friends that it's pretty much my only sermon illustration. So if you hear me <laughs> preach once, uh, you're good. Uh, but the compost pile, yeah, that was the thing. That was the crowning glory to see how dirty, rotten pieces of trash, what we would consider to be waste. In the ecosystem that God designed with the help of bacteria and worms becomes rich soil. Mm. What was your particular role there? I, I mean, I know you were a student. Um, did you have any role beyond just being a student? Uh, not, not to minimize the fact <laughs> that you were just a student. Uh, uh, forgive me for that. But was there any role beyond like maybe were you directing or were you I, I, I don't know. Was there any role beyond uh, being a student uh, in, in that uh, in the farm area? So I was a farmhand. So most of the workers on the farm are students. And I was a paid farmhand for about two years. Hmm. I was also the storyteller for the farm. So I ran the farm's Facebook and Instagram accounts. Hmm. It's kind of, I don't know, I struggled with Twitter. I could never really figure out a good way to tweet about the farm. <laughs> it's not really that sexy Twitter content that anyone's yeah. looking for. But Instagram was great. We were able to invite people from all around the world to experience the farm through these images. And it was really important to show folks that life happens in all seasons. There are things growing on the farm in the wintertime. There are myriad creatures that come across that land throughout the year. And that was a real joy for me to be able to use some of the skills I had from my journalism life to the service of the farm mm -hmm. and telling those stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ecological justice is obviously an incredibly pertinent issue in our world today. How can theology foster us to be restorers of this planet uh, that is being also destroyed by us? Like, how can we, uh, as, you know, how can we create and foster theology uh, that uh, minimizes and mitigates and actually restores this planet? So Nate Stuckey, who I mentioned a couple of seconds ago. He is a scholar of the Sabbath. Hmm. And I learned a lot about the Sabbath on the farm. I learned about the need for humans to rest and the need for the land to rest. I was reading just the other day about the millions of tons of produce and dairy that are being destroyed right now, even as people are lacking food, because we have an industrialized agriculture and food system that is not designed to deliver food to the people who need it most. At the same time, we have land that is only as productive as it is because of pesticides 
because of inorganic farming processes, because we have to manipulate the way things grow for things to be produced on the industrial scale that we need it to be. All of these things ignore the need for Sabbath. All of these things ignore the reality that land can't be infinitely productive and an ecosystem can't be infinitely productive when we're trying to optimize its industrial utility. Mm. Mm. A better and stronger theology of the Sabbath would transform our society. Mm. I love A that. better and more robust theology of the Sabbath would change the way humans work. It would change our relationship to animals. It would transform our understanding of the land. And I think it would actually point us back to God. I don't know that that's probably the answer that anybody expected when you asked ask about ecological justice, but I think justice, at least as I understand it, is written into even the fabric of the ecosystem. Hmm. The mechanism for judgment is right there. When we sin against the land, the land will not do what it was designed to do. Hmm. So justice for me would be restoring Sabbath both for us and for everything around us. And that is a deeply theological conviction. We are joined by none other than Shane Oshner, who is the or was the front man for Hands, and we're going to talk about some of the other things that he's up to in the world uh, uh, with everything in slow motion, which is his current band, uh, and maybe some a uh, little bit of uh, new things going on with that band. So now there's some new things boiling up. Like, can you tell yeah. us about what's what's going on? What's in the what's in the pipeline? New record. So this has been a. Uh... This has been waiting in the wings for actually a few years at this point. So when I did the, when I did the EP, the laid low EP, it was actually supposed to be two EPs. Mm. Um, originally it was supposed to be kind of like the more chill EP and then a, a more aggressive EP. And we got around to making the chill EP um, and it didn't work out to make the aggressive EP. <laughs> And so there was just kind of this like large gap in the catalog, you know, it's like 2013 Phoenix comes out and then 2016, you get five songs that are sort of in another realm. But yeah, like we just, it, it came out and there was a plan for another EP and it just didn't work out. And eventually the mentality shifted towards, you know what? Like I didn't, I, I didn't really like releasing an EP. Like it didn't feel complete to me. Um, the EP felt a little scrambled. Like it was almost like, you know, you had Bad Season, which I, and, and Coma is a cool song too. 
um, that got some attention from that EP, but it's like, for the most part, it just kind of feels like a experimental, you know, like, let's just try something else kind of EP, but it didn't feel to me like a complete, uh, thought, you know what I mean? Mm, Yeah. Um, and I just didn't like that. It's just like, oh, poof, there's five songs out there and now what? But yeah, I just felt this big push that we needed a full length and I needed to do um, another, you know, whatever, 11, 12 songs, whatever it is to to make it happen. And I had no idea what kind of nightmare I'd be diving into <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, December 2018 we decided to officially begin, um, you know, I had demoed a bunch of stuff and we rounded up Nate Washburn from, uh, he plays guitar for my Epic. Um, but he's, uh, recorded and engineered a bunch of really great records, like the band household. They're here mm, from mm-hmm. Kansas city and they put out great stuff and Nate's done their records. Nate's done my Epic stuff. Um, you know, and, and he's just such a great dude that I've known for a very long time. So we enlisted him as producer and engineer and all the sorts. And, uh, the plan was let's do drums in December, 2018. Let's do guitars, January, 2019, like a month later, let's do vocals. This record's coming out March, 2019. And here we are, (laughs) August, 2020. And we finally have a record that we're putting out. You know, I mean, it's like we just got the final masters, you know, two weeks ago. And it's, it could not believe how long it took. And there's a lot to that, that we are, you know, one thing that we're going to do here is uh, we're trying to, it's kind of a crazy story how this record happened. There's a, there's a lot of uh, details, a lot of really, crazy events and things that inspired the making of the record and, and a lot of, you know, fire that we had to jump through to get to this point way, way, way too long for this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, uh, we're trying to figure out a way to uh, kind of get those thoughts together. We, we talked about maybe doing like a little 12 episode podcast of mm. just like recapping the story behind the record, not creating a new podcast, but just like getting together a handful of episodes. If people were interested, if they wanted to kind of listen to how this thing happened and the thought process that that would be accessible. Cause for us, it's just like, it's just our time and it's fun to talk about, you know? So um, we've got that. We've got a really, we've got a, a, a bunch of really great photography from our friend, Lucas Carpenter who was there with us, um, the whole time. So we'll be putting that out. So with that said, then like, what can fans expect from the sound of this album? Maybe that differentiates itself from past albums. It's the best one straight (laughs) up, straight up. I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. It's the best one. So by the time, you know, by the time I think people hear this, the first song will be out. Um, and uh the record is called influence and uh that's actually the first song that'll that's coming out is a song called influence and it features aaron stone from my epic Mm. and um there's just an energy throughout this whole record that is i mean it's it's 
it blows everything else out of the water. It just does. And when I think of, you know, the last full length, which was seven years ago, that's seven years Mm -hmm. of new influences of trying new things Mm -hmm. of new skill sets of so much growth. Um, for me personally, um, you know, as far as how I want to, uh, do things musically, the, the palettes I'm pulling from, you know, um, lyrically where I'm coming from. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, dude, we couldn't be more proud. I I never thought it would be done. I never in a million years, I, I (laughs) legit, I remember many nights laying on the floor of the studio thinking this record will never be done. And I need to figure out how to tell Jason at face down that it's not going to happen and that I failed, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it it was, it was that hard. Um, but ultimately, you know, when we got the masters two weeks ago, all of us were just like, Whoa, what did we do? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's so, it's so rad. So, and, and it's so, there's so many different, it's a very dense record. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot happening. There's a lot to digest, uh, in tracks one through 10, it never gives you a break. It never gets, in my opinion, um, there's no filler. There's no, there's nothing that just got put in there for the sake of killing time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, every single song has its own thing and its own story and its own vibe. In my opinion, every when we were trying to think of singles, you know, like you got to think of what songs you're going to use for singles. And it's like we've never had a harder time. Every song, in my opinion, I want people to hear first, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, we couldn't be more stoked. It's it's awesome. So thank you so much, Shane. a part of the reformed tradition uh and you know you're inundated with it in uh grand rapids michigan uh, what are ways in which the reformed wh- what are ways in which reformed theology are really liberating for you as a gay asian american uh man so this is a little tricky question um i'm really grateful that you said the reformed tradition and not the calvinist tradition <laughs> And I that was intentional. Don't worry. I'm gratified by that. It reflects wisdom on your part. So much of the reform tradition is about the thoughts of straight white men. And that was a struggle for me. I didn't grow up in the reform tradition. I grew up Baptist. Hmm. 
And so it's taken a while to get to a point where even though in my heart, I understand and accept and embrace a lot of Reformed theology, it's taken a while for me to make sense of that intellectually and to puzzle out how it works. So one of the things I love about Reformed theology is that there's a humility to it. Uh, we say Reformed and always reforming, right? I don't know that we actually live that out all the time, <laughs> but the idea for me behind Reformed and always reform, reforming is we're still growing. We're still learning. There is still so much that we don't understand. And for me, given my multiple identities that don't look like the norm of the Reformed tradition, that means there's room there. Mm. That's That means there's room not just for me to learn and to grow, but also to speak and be heard. One of the most important Reformed theologians for me uh, is Alan Bosak, mm. the South African theologian and uh, justice activist who is who was so important during the apartheid era in the battle against apartheid. And he did this remarkable thing in a lot of his writing where he would use European, white European reformed theologians as conversation partners. So for instance, Abraham Kuyper, who is a Dutch theologian of the 19th century, who some people, and you can, we don't have time to argue whether it's fairly or unfairly, uh, credit with some of his theology as being one of the building blocks of apartheid. Mm. Busak does this amazing thing where he takes Kuiper's most famous statement, which is that there is not one square inch of this earth that is not under the dominion of King Jesus. Busak takes that and turns it into a cry for liberation theology and justice. Mm. And he does that by arguing that if Jesus, as the embodiment of God's love, really is king over every square inch of this earth, there is not a square inch of this earth that should not be claimed by God's justice. There's not a square inch of this earth that should not be reformed to conform with God's vision of love. Mm. And that, for me, reading Bosak, seeing him take someone that some people said theologically should be his enemy and oppressor and seeing him find by going back to scripture and looking around at his own circumstances for him to take that and find the good in it and find the power in it for the present moment as opposed to the 1890s that's incredibly liberating mm -hmm. it's an invitation for me to do the same thing to ask big questions about what, not just what God has done in the past, but what God is still doing now. Hmm. That's, the, that's the part of the debate where they just mic drop when, when he, uh, he turns Kuiper's own words against him. <laughs> if, if you, you want to argue make, that Kuiper made that case. But, right, yeah. and you could argue that um, it wasn't using Kuiper's words against him, it was extending Kuiper's mm. conclusion to its logical mm. and faithful mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. And maybe Kuiper would be humble enough to look at what has happened in the years since he wrote, because he had some very strong political stance himself, and say, no, Alan Busak was right. Mm. Alan Busak took what I was doing and 
helped me grow, right? Mm -hmm. I would like to believe that a truly reformed theologian would have that humility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some current projects you're working on? Uh, any books per chance in the works? Um, so I am just trying to get through this season of physical distancing. <laughs> I think that is a significant project. Uh, I just started a newsletter on Substack, jeffchu.substack.com, self-promotional moment. There you go. Writing a newsletter has been really scary. So I'm an Enneagram six and I'm an introvert. In most of my writing, I have been able to hide behind other people's stories. Writing this newsletter, and I've only done two installments so far, last week and this week, I've learned that I can't hide behind anyone else. And that's really hard. That's really scary. I don't know that I know how to do that well. There's a part of me that hopes that there will eventually be a book about the farminary. Hmm. That is also a frightening thing given my relative lack of experience. Every time I, have, I preach a sermon about compost, I pray that there will be no farmer and no compost geek in the <laughs> congregation because I'm always afraid I'm going to get some detail wrong and someone's going to come to the front or talk to me at the door and be like, well, actually, <laughs> this is how compost really works. And it hasn't happened yet, but that's one of the, 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 the nervous anxieties that I have in the back of my mind about writing about my experience at the farm. What if I get some details wrong? What if I am shown to be the charlatan that I've always thought that I am? <laughs> but maybe someday there will be a farminary book. How do you see your work being inspiring and liberating theological work? Okay, anybody who ever says to you, my work is inspiring because I really question <laughs> their theology. Uh, it just seems like such a bold and maybe even arrogant thing to say. I will say that I try to tell stories that are true and heartfelt and maybe sometimes painfully earnest. Mm because I hope that in some aspect of the story, you will see a little bit of yourself in it. Mm. I try to be carefully vulnerable, whether I'm preaching or writing or speaking or even emailing in the hopes that I will create a little bit of space for someone who hasn't had that space. I spent a lot of my life both inside and outside of the church, feeling like there wasn't space for me. Mm. That is a scarcity model at work. And I think scarcity models are not of God. My hope is that in my small way, I would over time be even better and more careful and more caring about telling stories about myself, about other people, about what I see of God that would create more space. Mm. And some days I do that well, Sometimes, some days I fail. Uh, I've learned a lot about some of my blind spots and ways in which I miss 
the lived experience of people who are not like me. But that's a part of other people making space for me too. So I don't think it's uh, theology that any one person can do alone. I think the best theology is always done in collaboration. Hmm. Last question, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? So as I mentioned, there's the newsletter on Substack. Uh, it's actually called Notes of a Make-Believe Farmer. <laughs> so that's one that's way. Great. Instagram is my favorite, or maybe my least unfavorite of the social media platforms. <laughs> you can probably find me being my most authentic social media self on Instagram. And my handle on Instagram is at byjeffchu, B-Y-J-E-F-F-C-H-U. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I don't love them the same way. Uh, and of course, there's my book. Does Jesus really love me? Awesome. Well, maybe maybe you'll have to get on the Snapchat game at, at some point. Maybe that could Lord become have your mercy. Maybe that could become your least favorite, or your least uh, unfavorite social media. I tried Snapchat for like thirty seconds, and I found myself <laughs> painfully bad at it. So you got three. You got through three snaps. <laughs> I couldn't handle the shame. So it's <laughs> great. I think I'm done with that. Well, Jeff, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate your humility, your wisdom, and your gentleness by which you do your theology and just engage with this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your work. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, quarantine treats you, you know, somewhat well as you continue on uh, social distancing. Thank you, Mason. If you would like to connect with both Jeff and everything in slow motion in their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.